When I talked to Charlotte Holdman, she'd spent 35 years working with defense teams on death penalty cases, including some very high-profile cases. But she hadn't given an interview to the press in decades, ever since an incident where she had a few drinks with a reporter and said some things she was unhappy to see in print. It was so embarrassing. And I thought, well, I either have to quit drinking or quit doing interviews. And I wasn't ready to quit drinking yet, so I quit doing <laughs> interviews. So this interview is a very rare event for me. I haven't done any kind of interviews with the media since 85. And you are ending the moratorium in this one instance. For this story, why? Well, a fluffy, red-combed leghorn deserves his moment in the sun. (laughs) I mean, just the image. And I'm not talking about any chicken. I'm talking about, you can just picture it, this you know, beautiful leghorn, his tail perked up, and that red comb sitting at kind of a rakish angle on his head, and his head kind of cocked to the side, and he looks at you with his little eyes. That's what this story is about. That is not just what this story is about. That is what a lot of today's radio show is about. Back in the early days of our radio show, once a year, during the highest poultry consumption time in the country, which is, of course, if you think about this for a second, you can guess the answer to this. It's the weeks that begin with Thanksgiving and go through Christmas and New Year's. Anyway, during that period, for years on our show, we had a tradition here. We would devote an entire hour of our program to stories of chickens, turkeys, ducks, fowl of all kind, and an homage to Chicago's poetry slams, which have spread across the country but were created at the Green Mill Bar on the north side by poet Mark Smith. We named these programs Poultry Slams. Poultry. But I just want to be clear before we begin, the word slam, we are using that with no malice toward any bird of any kind at all. No birds were hurt, no birds were slaughtered, no birds were slammed in the making of today's program. And we have incredible stories today. Incredible enough that at least one woman has ended a quarter-century moratorium on talking to the press to be here with me. And you should, too. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Equan, witness for the barbecution. So Charlotte Holdman didn't just get the idea of calling a chicken as a witness in a murder case out of the blue. She was working on this case, and we're going to call this guy Harry. And there was no question that the guy had killed somebody. This wasn't about whether he'd done it. It was just about what sentence he would get. He had sat on death row at San Quentin for 10 years. But Charlotte says he was schizophrenic with an IQ of 58 and just out of touch with reality. And one of the things he did... Uh, he wrote messages and symbols on little pieces of toilet paper and rolled them up in a ball. And had done this for years on death row. Rolled the little secret messages up in a ball and then rolled them in feces, his own feces. And then to little tiny bead-sized balls and put those into the braids in his hair. Oh, my. So that they dangled around his forehead. And, and, he, and the things he was putting mm-hmm. in his hair, and, and he, from his point of view, they, were they communicating some information, the little messages? Exactly. But he couldn't tell me what the messages were because they were secret. Mm-hmm. When I would talk to him about his mother, he would tell me she lived in a Coca-Cola can. It's against the law to execute somebody who is so crazy he doesn't understand why he's being executed. And uh, Charlotte said that was true for this guy. 
when I would say, do you know what's going to happen on the 12th of June, uh, he was kind of befuddled and with pressure, he would finally say, well, yeah, he thought he was going to be reupholstered. The state of California did not agree with Charlotte about this guy. They wanted to execute him in 30 days. Charlotte's team uh, was making a last-ditch appeal to stay this execution. Meanwhile, the state was gathering its evidence. San Quentin sent in a prison psychiatrist to determine, was he competent to be executed? Did he know he Mm -hmm. was going to be executed? And did he know why he was going to be executed? So the psychiatrist goes and interviews Harry. And then the psychiatrist testified in court that not only was Harry aware that he was going to be executed, she was so certain of this because she had played tic-tac-toe with him and Harry had beat her. Well, it was so absurd and and so outside of any of normal experience in a courtroom, and this is after, you know, 30 years of being in death penalty cases in the South, around the world, and, uh, you know, I really couldn't believe she had said it. But at the same time, the only image that came to me, I'm from the South, obviously, um, and growing up, we always went to uh, the Mid-South Fair, and they had a chicken that played tic-tac-toe that absolutely mesmerized me. And it was pretty clear to me, okay, we've got to find a chicken who can play tic-tac-toe. Charlotte thought, and this is not a joke, it's not an exaggeration, she thought that a chicken like that could save this man's life. Jurors, after all, tend to believe the state and its witnesses. And a chicken like that could totally undermine the psychiatrist's testimony by proving that playing tic-tac-toe doesn't mean that you understand things like why you're being executed. I just knew a chicken would work. It's a sad state, but I think a chicken has more credibility than uh, the defense team did. And I I think it would have uh, brought the jury over to seeing us as people rather than as these obstructionists who were interfering with uh, an execution. And who can doubt a chicken? I mean, you can't, you know, uh, chickens aren't going to lie. Chickens have uh, integrity. I had this image of, of the psychiatrist being on the stand, and I would quietly enter through the wooden doors as they opened with this beautiful leghorn under my arm, mm. right, and the comb at a rakish angle. And as I walked into the courtroom, not saying a word, and quietly took a seat on the front row, the psychiatrist who we knew because we'd investigated her background from New York City, would see a person with a chicken and think, why is that, oh my God, no. And that psychiatrist (laughs) would slowly realize that she was going to have to play tic-tac-toe with a chicken. So you're trying to psych out, you're trying to get inside the psychiatrist's head and make the psychiatrist unravel even before you pull your stunt. The jury's eyes as awareness overcame her. So it couldn't, it wouldn't work with a frazzled chicken. You know, I didn't want a splotchy, beat up, tired, exhausted chicken. I wanted a chicken that could capture the audience's attention. In this case, the audience was the jury. Right. Uh, you need a, just, you need a, a chicken like in a cartoon. Look, I had to have a chicken that could take on a psychiatrist. 
you know, it had to be a stand-up chicken. Noted. So, uh, we began to hunt for this stand-up chicken. Well, this task uh, fell to the illegal interns. A man was scheduled to die at that point in less than two weeks, and they needed a chicken. And they searched the places that you find tic-tac-toe playing chickens, namely county fairs, carnivals. And really, within hours, they found a tic-tac-toe playing goose in Montana. But of course, Charlotte says that was totally unacceptable. I mean, geese are nasty. You know, they bite you. They're, they're not... I didn't want a goose uh, running around the courtroom chasing someone. Next was a guy at a roadside stand in Wyoming who did have a chicken, and it did play tic-tac-toe, but he said that uh, flying or driving it to California for the trial would probably upset it so much that he could not guarantee that it would win the game of tic-tac-toe, so he was out. Finally, they found a fella in Arkansas who trains chickens to play tic-tac-toe, and he had a whole list of chickens that he had trained around the country, and he uh, sent the legal team to one of those birds in San Francisco— That uh, turned out to be a dead end. Uh, San Francisco had actually passed an ordinance banning the playing of tic-tac-toe by chickens as animal cruelty. Fortunately, another chicken on the list was not far from there at the boardwalk in Santa Cruz. They had their chicken. So the next step was to convince the court to let us bring the chicken to court as a witness, as demonstrative evidence, to introduce the chicken and let the chicken play tic-tac-toe. Now, of course, I wanted the chicken to play tic-tac-toe with the psychiatrist, but I realized, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, that most likely no one was going to let us get away with that. But I did think that <laughs> any of us, you know, a, a really healthy group of interns, they knew how to play tic-tac-toe, so that we could demonstrate to the jury that playing tic-tac-toe did not mean that you were aware of your con- the consequences of your actions. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you be allowed to make the psychiatrist play tic-tac-toe with a chicken? Like, I understand why the psychiatrist would not want to do it, but from a legal point of view, like, what, what line does that cross? Well, evidently, I agree with you, but uh, the court felt, it never addressed the issue of having to play the, uh, the psychiatrist, but the court felt that bringing the chicken into the courtroom to play Mm tic-tac-toe would degrade the dignity of the court. I thought that the dignity of the court was degraded by executing a mentally ill person. Uh, So the court denied our motion and said we could not bring the chicken into the courtroom for demonstrative evidence. It ruled against us. They weren't even allowed to show the jury a video of the chicken playing tic-tac-toe. And without a chicken on the stand, without a video of a chicken, the jury found the psychiatrist credible and ruled to execute Charlotte's client. His life was saved later on appeal. And in the years since then, in 2002, the Supreme Court ruled that a person at his level of mental retardation cannot be executed. For Charlotte, though, the story stays with her, the story of the chicken. Because in decades of doing these capital trials, bringing hundreds of witnesses, it is the greatest courtroom move she ever invented, bringing in the chicken. And she never got to try it, you know? She invented this thing. She never got to try it. It was snatched away from her. Something like that sticks in your craw. Well, yeah, because I didn't get to do it. But it's also because of the nature and quality of a chicken, when you do this kind of work, you know, when you're down in um, 
the worst part when you're trying to work for folks that literally the community wants to kill. Mm. Um, it can be pretty discouraging, but you have this nice, fluffy leghorn, brightens up your day, and you forge on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not all of this, all of this uh, is not to you know, make light of death as punishment, of people with mental retardation, of mm-hmm. people who are mentally ill, or of chickens. Thank you, you know, for saying and that. Yeah. And no, it's really not. I, uh, uh, I actually am a member of PETA. Charlotte Holdman in New Orleans. Today's show is a rerun. We first broadcast this story back in 2011. In the years since, capital punishment was suspended in the state of California by Governor Gavin Newsom. Charlotte, this incredible person that I loved talking to, she was called the Angel of Death Row for her work in getting proper legal representation for people on death row. She died in 2017. Act two, chicken diva. Chickens are what we make of them in lots of ways. If you could possibly need further evidence of that after that first act, we have this story from Jack Hitt. Oddly enough, it wasn't Susan who was obsessed with chickens. It was Kenny, a pal who worked backstage at the 92nd Street Y in New York. His house was filled with chicken cups, chicken masks. He got the whole staff onto chickens, including Susan. For a time there in the 80s, poultry-related jokes and references became the fast way to get a laugh at the Y. I guess most of us are condemned to see nothing more than the easy comedy of chickens. But Susan Fatucci saw something else. Their potential greatness their hidden beauty, their grandeur. One day she glued together some finger puppets for a 10-minute rendition of the Chicken Little story for her nephew. That was 14 years ago. Today, it is a full-length opera, enjoyed by a cult following whenever it goes up in a workshop or cafe or small theater. It's still performed with finger puppets, but now it has a complete score written by a noted composer, Henry Krieger, who did Dreamgirls. The Chicken Little opera he wrote with Susan Vitucci is called Love's Foul. Needless to say, that's F-O-W-L. Well, we were going to start uh, with the uh, opening, Siamo del Teatro, Repertorio delle Malette. We are the Clothespin Repertory Theater. And we have a special singing guest for you, which uh, I don't know if we're Susan and I are sitting at Henry's baby grand piano. Henry's guest is his Maltese terrier named Toby. Perhaps Toby would be kind enough to... You want to, yeah, would you sit on your lap for this? The piano, oh, okay. yeah. Let's yeah. see what we can do. Okay. Okay, listen carefully. Because once Toby gets going, he actually harmonizes with Henry and Susan. Siamo del teatro repertorio delle molette. Celebrium una memoria della nostra Giorgia Mitte. You may have noticed that this libretto is in Italian, just like a real opera. Before it was just a bunch of puppets in a box, you know, with a good idea. And then suddenly, as soon as it went into Italian, it became something bigger than what it had been. And it's because when it's in English... We all kind of know it, and it's really not that interesting. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as it's in Italian, it gives us enough distance that we can come in. You know, it makes us, it's like the, the lover who doesn't want you. 
you don't want anybody more than you want the one who doesn't want you, <laughs> right? And so it's sort of the same thing. You may recall that when you last heard of Little, back in kindergarten, she was just an average barn door fowl who had an acorn drop on her head, which she mistakenly understood to be the sky falling. Her alarms excited her friends, Goosey Lucy, Turkey Lurkey, and Ducky Lucky. And they join her for a journey to the king to tell him the important news. On the way, they meet up with Sly Fox. Little's pals eagerly accept his invitation for dinner, literally as it turns out. Fortunately for Little, hunger is not enough to distract her from her mission, and she treks on. When she meets the king, he tells her that the sky is not falling, it's just an acorn. So the enlightened chicken Little returns to her coop, and that's where the story ends. What are we to take away from Little's experience? I like to think it's that Little is rewarded with life precisely because she went off on this quixotic mission, totally in the grip of a wrong idea. Si certo, signore Valperasso, ci raggiungi, signore Valperasso, andiamo, amici, andiamo al rei, andiamo, andiamo. The children's fable barely figures into the story. It's just one small episode in the life of Chicken Little, now known as La Pulcina Piccola. After the acorn incident, she goes on to become an internationally renowned figure in almost every field imaginable, a diva of politics, academe, theater, art, daring do. Like Venus, she arrives from some other world, transported on a scallop shell. But the triumphs of her life begin after a youthful love affair with a fighting cock ends bitterly, and she consoles herself, as we all do at some point in our lives, by plunging into Shakespeare. She becomes an overnight sensation as an actress, celebrated all over the world for one role. Juliet, Cleopatra, Ophelia. The company then performs a an excerpt, a recreation of the, her signature role, which was Richard the <laughs> Third. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Sarah Bernhardt did Hamlet. Well, there's a great tradition of women playing the men's roles in Shakespeare, but I think Richard the Third is one of the r more rare roles to be played by a woman. Well, that's how adventuresome. <laughs> an actress this chicken was. I can assure you there's nothing like watching a four-inch tall finger puppet crying out, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, in Italian. Not to mention that that puppet is a chicken, surrounded by a whole supporting cast of poultry and other avian supernumeraries. Susan says that, artistically, there's something special about chickens. They're a clean slate. There are, you can put anything on them. You can project anything onto them because it's not like they have, to me at least, a very strong personality. Except for La Pulcina. In the opera, she moves into the field of archeology, span masters it, needless to say, and makes a great discovery, the last tomb of Galapatra. But not before she sails the seven seas, is shipwrecked, gets rescued, but it's by pirates, and then she meets the pirate king. As he, soon as he meets her, he falls in love with her because of her sweet spirit. Because she comes in and she says, here you see a little chicken 
um, who, although I'm dripping wet, I'm proud and yellow. Let me repeat that lyric for you in a pure translation. Although I stand before you, a chicken, who is dripping wet, I am proud and I am yellow. Okay, back to Susan. And although I've uh, loved and I have lost, I have learned to follow the call of adventure. So let's sail on. Arriva stamattina. Benvenuto, benvenuto. Sulla questa copertina. Benvenuto, benvenuto. Benché bagnata, fradigia. Ziele, ziele. Sono giallo e sapevo. Ziele, ziele. Keep in mind that all of the action, like everything that occurs in every Susan Fatucci production, ever since the first one for her nephew, and continuing to this day, occurs among characters created by sticking a small painted styrofoam ball onto a larger painted styrofoam ball, poking in two map tacks for eyes, gluing on a tiny felt beak, and then impaling the whole thing on top of one of those really old-fashioned clothespins that a 40s cartoon figure would clamp to his nose around a chunk of Limburger cheese. And I could go on. Susan has written, or she puts it, translated, La Pulcina Piccola's diaries, which detail the other adventures that happen in between those in the opera. There are 60 pages so far, excerpts of which have appeared in Clotheslines, the official fan club newsletter of the opera. Love's Foul has a strange effect on people. I didn't understand it until Susan loaned me a videotape of one performance. To be honest, I thought I would be annoyed at the intentional irony and hokiness of the puppets. But there I was with my three-year-old daughter, who loved the show, watching a plastic bird pantomime one of the simplest human moments, but also one of the most profound. The confession of a great love. In this case, with a cock robin. The song that she sings as she enters goes, I am a chicken and ready for love. My heart is as fragile as the egg from which I was born. Treat me gently and so will I treat you. Together from earthly love we will reach for the divine. And then she sings, I'm a chicken and I can't fly without love. My heart, my heart it is strong as the, the egg from which I was born, and so forth. And so it is a, only with Cock Robin that she flies. Amore, cos'è questo? Amore, cos'è? Un pilote elegante, vivace e libero. Questo è l'amore altissimo. And after they have agreed to fly together, and they are soaring in the air, Cock Robin is shot and killed, murdered by a jealous sparrow. I couldn't believe it, but I was getting choked up, especially when Cock Robin appeared on the stage, his styrofoam body spray-painted black for the lament, his little magic marker eyes drawn as X's. I gathered my daughter in my arms and held on tight as I was helplessly drawn into an expression of the grief and suffering of this little sad bird. In this era of slick special effects, there was something unexpectedly liberating in the marriage of this crude medium, painted styrofoam balls bobbing up and down behind a cardboard box, and the high melodramatic art of Italian opera. 
Picture it. Adesso con un bacino arriva dergi amore mio. Adesso il suo spirito vive solo nel mio cuore. Dove vado? Come continuo cuore mio? Coraggio pulcinina, c'è almeno una ragione per vivere. Giustizia! I want a subscription to that newsletter. Are you going to do this? Uh, I mean, are you going to be working with Pulcina Piccola, you think, for the rest of your life? It's possible, and I like working with her because I get to go into a world that's, that's inhabited by a very sweet spirit and play with that were the mechanics of the world. And because it's very small, like I could never have afforded to produce this show with people, uh, but I could afford to do it with clothespins. So I can do as big a production as I want with clothespins. I can have stuff fly in and out and come in from traps and I can have all kinds of fancy flashy stuff that costs millions of dollars to, to do on Broadway. And, you know, it cost me $200 because I had to buy lots and lots and lots of styrofoam and clothespins and stuff and all this in a new table, maybe. And I get to do whatever I want. That story from Jack Hitt. Arrivederci, Polcianina. Buon viaggio. Ciao. Coming up, chicken supermodels and chickens who return with a message from the afterlife. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose the theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show during this period of greatest poultry consumption in our nation, the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We bring you stories of chickens, turkeys, ducks, fowl of all kind, real and imagined. We arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, trying to respect the chicken. Okay, sure. It's one thing to take a fictional character like Chicken Little and make her into a star. Try doing that with a real chicken. Seriously, just try. <clears throat> well, uh... These are photographs of chickens. Um, the first one here is um, a silver-laced wine dot. It's uh, a black and white bird, essentially, but the tail feathers have a lot of uh, iridescent green coloring. In a world where chickens get no respect, Tamara Staples treats them the way that humans treat those we revere most. She takes their portraits lovingly. Her shots are like fashion photographs, beautifully lit, color backdrops. They're beautiful. You know, the first one looked regal, but now you've just turned to one where, where it almost looks like it's like a clown. It looks, it looks comic. Mm-hmm. It's a modeled houdan, which I always uh, sort of call the, like the Phyllis Diller chicken. Which oh, is, my God, the chicken does look like Phyllis Diller. <laughs> it does. It's the hat. You know, it looks like uh, it's got this huge feathered hat sort of thing and a strange body shape and like these... In a way, it's like Tamara Staples is running an odd little cross-species science experiment, one that asks this question. What happens when you try to treat a chicken the way we treat humans? 
even if it's just for the length of a photo shoot. What happens, it turns out, is that you learn just where the thin line is that divides human beings from birds. All right, maybe it's not such a thin line, but it's definitely a line. And like most city people, I had never thought about it, about where it lays, about what it might be, what it might consist of, until Tamara and I headed out to a farm. I think that is the best one. Yeah, we gotta get him. Can we? We don't want him to get dirty or anything, do we? Uh, or does it matter? She runs loose every day. Can you find her? Yeah, we can pick her out. We're gonna have to get him to. We're gonna have to wrangle them, you know. Get we're at the Davidsons Dairy Farm, about an hour and a half northwest of Chicago. Family members present: Paul, who's helping Tamara choose a bird to photograph; his sister Laura, who's studying photography at a nearby university; the grandfather George Cairns, a veteran breeder; their father Dick, who seems the most skeptical of this whole project but who patiently shows Tamara and her assistant Dennis the milking barn as a possible place to set up and shoot. What kind of an area are you looking for? Well, maybe, I mean, it needs to, could be a little wider, don't could you think? And if it could be from here to there, yeah. and, you know, from like that pole to that pole. For what? Uh, Stan, what? Well, we're, we are set. Maybe this is a good time to pull out the portfolio. Okay. You want to grab it? Um, I'm actually, I mean, it's a study of the birds, but it's an isolated study, so it doesn't, people aren't necessarily associating it with the farm and something to eat. Tamara takes and us I all outside the barn so dust won't get on her photos and shows them her shots, name-dropping the names of some big chicken people, people whose birds she's photographed, including Bob Wolf, editor of the Poultry Press. Dick notices that a bird in one photo has crooked toes. Yeah. Uh, probably on a hard surface in your turn. Yeah. What do you guys think of the, the pictures? Well, the pictures are nice and sharp. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the pictures. If there's anything to find fault with, it's the birds. <laughs> you know, they aren't posing the way they should, some of them. Fact is, while city people usually go uh, nuts when they see Tamara's pictures, a lot of chicken breeders don't like them. Like and to understand why, you know, to fully comprehend this little culture clash here in America. We have to leave the barnyard for a minute and flash back to something that happened back at Tamara's apartment in the city. Tamara showed me this old red book from the turn of the century, this book with the seal of the American Poultry Association in gold on the front, and then right there in gold letters. Standard of perfection. The standard of perfection is really the Bible of poultry um, standards, you know, what birds are. Tamara flipped past the engravings and illustrations of chickens of all types and breeds. These were show chickens, standing the way that chickens stand in competitions. Then uh, Tamara pulled out one of her own photos to compare, to show me how her poses do not meet the standard in the book. The tail needs to be higher. Her feet are not erect, you know, standing. Chest isn't out. Head needs to be up more. And it shows, I mean, you can see the shape of the chicken much better in the standard of perfection pose. See, to me what's so interesting, though, is that the standard of perfection doesn't include a personality. Right. Because it's not about personality, it's about breeding. And so is that that a pose that the owners would want to own a photo of? Um... They, they're very particular about this. They want to see their bird in the standard of perfection pose, definitely. 
because that's what they've been taught from 4-H when they were kids to do. That's for them. For herself, for her city customers. She chooses the others. Okay, back to the barnyard. Hammer and the Davidsons decide to set up the photo session in a room that's usually used to store feed for the cows. It takes about 45 minutes to set this up. That 45 minutes includes dismantling and moving a wall of hay that is probably 10 feet high and 15 feet long. This takes five people. Then, in comes the power and the fancy lights and the cloth backdrop that gets hung from a steel pole. The backdrop is ironed first with an iron and ironing board brought from the city just for that purpose. Eleven and a half, eleven and an eight and a half. Yeah, eleven and a half. Your your test is going to be at eleven and a half, eleven and eight and a half. You're going to shoot your film at eleven. It was cold, well below freezing. So cold that the Polaroid film that Tamara uses for lighting tests would not fully develop. You ready for the bird? We're close. Just want to commune with the bird. We just want to make you pretty. Look how sweet. Aren't you? You know what? I'm going to photograph you. My name is Tamara. I'll be your photographer for today. Our first bird is a white Cornish, a showbird who belongs to George. The showbird is used to being picked up and handled. Part of preparing chickens for shows involves handling them a lot so they'll be calm with the judges. He can just nudge his head up a little bit. He's perfect. He's got his chest out. Okay, now he's got his face in. Okay, yeah, you know what we want. Yeah, you're great, Georgie. He's got a feather on his on his back here. Tamara has the Cornish stand up on a stack of little red antique books, kind of unsteady. Things go well for a while. She gets a half dozen good shots of the bird, expressive shots, more personality than standard of perfection, George tells me. The bird's chest isn't high enough. Its body is not turned correctly to the camera. And then the bird stops cooperating. He gets tired. Paul has a suggestion. Bring in a pullet. You know what? You know that works. Maybe you should explain what that is. What, what does that mean to bring in a pullet? Maybe, thinks maybe a female will per, perk him up. <laughs> Laura grabs a hen and waves yeah, it at the flaccid know. cock. The cock does not rise. Come on. He's like, I'm just calling. I can say that on the radio, right? Gloria, probably would have been better to get the one from the other pen that he's not used to. Fresh blood. That's nice. Bring him around a little bit, um, so his for real. The chicken, the the, the, the rooster will will show off more yeah, for a hand that it doesn't know. Yes. Do you put a new hand in with him, or him in with a group of new hands? He will really show off. They try this and that, nothing with much success. Finally, with one shot left. Paul suggests really putting a hen into the picture with the rooster. Uh, get the girl to like, she looks like her feet are like so far apart. She's really struggling to stand. That's all right. That's all right. Oh, oh, did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> all right. We Why, got what'd it. you just do? Describe She looked up at him very sweetly, like that. Well, with her with her head cocked, the male bird was um, posing and she was posing also, but had a personality of just being like the sweet, doting mother, you know? But not standard of perfection. But not standard of perfection. So um, we're done with this background and... uh, Not standard of perfection. Even these perfectly bred Cornishes could not achieve standard of perfection today. And even in this goofy, unbird-like situation, an hour of watching them makes clear just how hard it is to ever get birds to hit the standard. Which is to say... Not only do we completely dominate every aspect of the lives of chickens, their births, their feed, their eggs, their slaughter, not only have we bred them to human specifications to meet human needs, 
but we have created a standard of what it means to be a chicken that most chickens can never meet. That's what the standard means. We judge them as chickens, and we find them lacking. If they had the brains to understand this, they would be right to feel indignant. But of course, this is a city person's perspective, and that means that it is completely wrong-headed from the point of view of anybody who actually raises birds. Standing in the cold feed room, I had a long, long talk with George about this. George is 80 years old, has been raising birds since the, I guess, the Calvin Coolidge administration. And he says the whole fun of raising birds is raising them to the standard. Well, like, for instance, if your birds uh, lack bone, okay, you go out and buy a bird as near to like them as you can with better bone. But when you mate them together, you, you might get long-legged birds or too short. or I mean, you don't get what you want just by mating. It takes four or five years to gradually get it up. And by that time, they're inbred and you need new ones. George tells me that when he's breeding a new batch of birds, he'll hatch 65 of them, and only one or two will be anywhere near the standard of perfection. That's how hard it is. Do you get frustrated with the standard of perfection sometimes? No, we get frustrated with the judges. Because every judge has his own idea of what the standard should be. I thought that's the whole point of a standard, is that the that, judge doesn't... That is, but uh, one judge will want it this way and another another. Today, if you bred your birds to the standard of perfection, weight and everything, and took them to the show, you probably wouldn't get anywhere. you got to breed to the fads. That's right. The fads. Like, Cornishes these days are supposed to have shorter legs than the real standard of perfection. Vertical tail feathers are out on all sorts of breeds that really should have them. In the country, among the chicken breeders, they think about a lot of things we never get to in the city. And, and are there, when you're raising these birds, like, are you, with any of these birds, I mean, do you have a close relationship with a bird the way somebody would have with a pet? I don't have time. Yeah, I've just, I got too many things to do. See, Three years ago, I almost died of cancer, and good Lord told me how to cure myself. And so I've been working with that a lot the last three years. I've helped people and put it in papers. Now it's getting all over the United States. What did you do? What did you do? It's to use the root of a dandelion. Simple as can be. But there's something in that that builds up your blood and your immune system. Wait a second. You're saying that you were diagnosed with cancer, and this is the only treatment you had and it cured you? Yeah. And I've given it to other people when the medical world has told them that there's nothing more they can do as they've got well, too, but not all of them. If they're too far gone, it won't help them. And you make it into tea or something like that? Well, uh, we just put it in a little water, a little milk, Kool-Aid. You can put it on a sandwich, anything that isn't hot. George gives me a pamphlet that he's written up. No doctor has actually checked him out to prove the cancer has gone from his body. He's actually got no hard scientific proof that this really works. But he says God told him that this is the way he should be spending his time. And it is cut into his bird breeding a bit. George leaves, off another business. Timers finish hanging and lighting the next backdrop. And the rest of us begin with the second bird, a bird called a Brahma, with elaborately patterned brown and white feathers.
She is big. Yep. This is a chicken like the size of a dog. Not that big. Small dog. <laughs> Our second bird demonstrates the great distance between bird instinct and intelligence and the demands of modern fashion photography, which is to say, of civilization. Called upon to do human tasks, even rather passive ones. A bird remains a bird. Paul carries the huge hand onto the fragile little set Tamara's built. Beauty. What you eating there, buddy? Oh, Ooh, it slapped me. I'm scared of this one, she says, quietly, as she adjusts her camera. The chicken is so big, nine pounds, the size of a small consumer turkey, and she has to pull the camera back. The Davidsons are looking at her skeptically. Paul asks pointedly if she's ever shot a bird this big. We gotta figure out where the... Hello, bird. Are you gonna slap me in the face again? I hope not. It's time to jump right in your face. You know why you're here? Let's talk. We need you to be beautiful. Here's your moment. Okay? There are more where you came from, buddy. You better act up here. This combination of coddling and threats might motivate an aspiring supermodel or an eager puppy. But this, after all, is a chicken. Laura tries to lure it up with a handful of corn. You take corn where she's trying to get it, but she has to stand up high for it. Is that where you want her to stand? Somewhere during this ordeal, a funny thing happens. All the Davidsons, who all started off skeptical, they are completely engaged. Dick suggests a pose that is pure art concept, a pose that could not be further from standard of perfection. Laura lures the bird with corn, Paul smooths feathers, and when the bird quivers or moves a wing, three people jump in to fix it back up. There's some feathers on the breast, a little bit, a little bit fluffy, you know, it's like she's not real clean down there, okay. She's a little farther. You guys are a great team. I'm going to hire you to come with me. Oops, I got a hand in there. That's not, move the hand, move the hand. Move the hand, okay, great. It wasn't until this point that I realized that I came into this sort of expecting the bird to be more, well, more human. Partly, I think, because I had never really thought about this one way or the other, uh, but partly because Tamara's photos make chickens seem so, so thoughtful. Over here. Look at the camera, look at the camera. No, right she's there. completely out of frame. Those photos are a lie. Hello? I think you're going to have a one-shot opportunity here. It's going to be when I let go. Jeez, I didn't let go. I just started to let up, and he yanked it right out of my hand. fact is, you can try to give chickens respect. You can try to treat them with dignity and photograph them the way you'd photograph anything or anyone that's serious but the chickens will not care. You can make them look dignified, but it is a brainless, bird-like dignity. And it is ephemeral. Do you feel like uh, your relationship with chicken has changed because of this? No, not at all. How could that not be so? <laughs> um, I order the chicken, you know, when I'm at the show, I eat it right in front of the chickens. You eat chicken while you're standing there with a chicken? <laughs> yes. Is it wrong? Oh. I'm hungry. Well, no wonder they want to sit still. <laughs> yeah.
We pack up our gear and move the massive wall of hay back into place. As we do this, chickens hop by. Brahmas, Americanos, mixed breeds. They seem utterly uninterested in us. They cluck at each other. There's feed to eat, hay to nestle in. They have better things to do with their time. And you know, there's nothing that makes you realize just how inhuman chickens are than spending a day trying to make them seem human. Deck four, winged migration. So it was Saturday, January 10th, 2004. And Spalding was in our apartment in New York with our daughter, Marissa, who was 16 at the time, and Theo, who was six. This is Kathy Russo. Her husband was Spalding Gray, who is best known for delivering monologues on stage, like Monster in a Box and Swimming to Cambodia. Both those monologues were also filmed as movies. Spalding Gray went missing on January 10th, 2004, Witnesses say they saw him on the Staten Island Ferry that night. His body was finally found, pulled out of the East River two months later. Our program today is about birds and the hold they have on us. And Kathy Russo tells this story about Spalding's last night and the days immediately after that. Like she just said, her husband was with two of their kids that night. She was out. They have a third child, Forrest, who was 11 at the time. He was in Sag Harbor, Long Island, with friends and a babysitter. They had a house out there, too. Spalding had t- had dinner with the kids, and then it got to be about 7 p.m. He said he was going to meet an old friend. And Marissa goes, oh, that's fine. You know, I'm here. I can, I can watch Theo. And he went out. And about an hour and a half after that, he called, check in on the kids. Theo answered, and he said, how's everything going? He goes, good. He goes, well, I love you very much, and I'll be home soon. And we never saw Spalding again. The next series of events uh, still seem like a blur to me, even five years later. But the first thing I had to do was go report Spalding missing. I did that, and then I decided to send the kids home back to Sag Harbor to join their brother. So I stayed for two days, did whatever I could, which was pretty much nothing. And after two days, I just decided I'm going back to Sag Harbor to join all the kids. So I'm driving on the Long Island Expressway back to Sag Harbor, And I get a phone call on my cell phone, and it was Theo, and he was all excited. And he said, Mom, Mom, we came home today from school, and there was a bird, a little bird, flying around the island in the kitchen. I said, and then what did you do next? And he said, well, we we followed the bird, and Marissa followed him into the bathroom, and she tried to calm the bird, and she took a hat and cupped it over the bird and captured the bird and went outside and let him out free. And I was just so dumbfounded and and awestruck. The first image that came to my head when he said that there was something, a a bird in particular, uh, circling over this island, was I thought of Spalding and how for the last two years he had obsessively circled around that island, talking to himself, just circling in, in total anguish. You see... Two years before that, we had been in Ireland celebrating his 60th birthday. And the second day there, Spalding and I were in a horrible car accident. Spalding suffered enormous head trauma. Um, He was never the same. They actually had to put titanium plate in his head. He was in and out of hospitals for two years after the accident. Doctors prescribed various cocktails 
of pills for him. Nothing worked. Not even the uh, 20 electric shock treatments that he had. And the second thought I had when I heard about the bird was, was this a message from Spalding? Was he trying to tell us something? We've never had a bird in our house before. And I remember the Irish have this saying that if you find a bird in your house after someone dies and it's alive, the person's soul is free. And if you find a dead bird, the person's soul is restless. And I remember Spalding. I'll never forget the story after his mother killed herself 35 years before. His father woke up the very next day, and next to his bed, where his slippers were on the floor, was a dead bird. And that story just stayed with me. So that night after the kids went to bed, I went around the house, and I was making sure that another bird could not get into this house because I wasn't going to take the chance of another bird coming into the house and, and dying. So I checked all the windows, and I closed all the fireplaces to make sure, to guarantee that there was no way a bird could come into our house. And the next day, I was at the dining room table reading the paper, and I looked up, and there was a bird across the table peering at me. And I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. So I yell out to the kids who are in the other room, and they run in, and the bird takes off and flies up the stairs, and we all follow it, and we go. it goes into what's our office, and it's perched on top of this window. And I shut the door behind me, and for some reason, I held up my hands, thinking the bird might magically, you know, come to my hands. And I go, Spalding, it's okay. You're safe now. It's okay. Come to me. And Forrest and Theo are on the other side of the door going, Mom, why are you calling the bird after Dad? And the bird just sat there staring at me. And then it took off, and it flew over my hands. And in between the space in between the door and the floor, it scooted out, went past the boys, flew down the stairs, and we had already opened up the kitchen doors, and it flew out the kitchen doors, and it was safe, and it was gone. The next day, I'm in the kitchen, and Forrest calls out from the TV room. He was watching cartoons. He goes, Mom, the bird's back. It's at the end of the couch. So before I even go into the room, I open up the kitchen doors just to make sure we have an exit for the bird. And I run into the family room, and sure enough, there's the bird. And we do, it's like become a drill now. This is the third day, consecutive day with the bird in our house. And we follow the bird around, and it go, this time it goes through the living room, and then it comes back into the kitchen. And I actually got the camera out, and I took a picture of it. And the bird flew out. Just like that, it was gone. And two months later, they found Spalding's body in the East River. I think with... Suicide, in particular, it's, it's a really hard death to digest. There's a lot of guilt. You go back and back, and you, you get into that mode of, I should have done this, I could have done that. Um, it's, a, it's a seesaw of, of guilt and forgiveness. So last year was my 47th birthday, and I was feeling kind of blue, and I was really missing Spalding. And I went on this um, bike route that the two of us used to take together, and it ends up by the water. And just before I got to the water, 
I saw this little brownish gray bird sitting on the side of the road, just like the one that we had in our house. And I passed by on my bike. I, I ride pretty fast, but something told me, go back. And I did. And the bird was just sitting there, and, and I'd get up close to it and didn't fly away, so I figured the bird was hurt. And I'm looking at the bird, crouching over it, and this jogger goes by me, and he said, oh, that bird was there two hours ago when I started my run. So I raced back home on my bike, and I went into the house, and I collected a shoebox, and I filled it with grass and birdseed, got some rubber gloves, and I drove back to where the bird was. And the bird was still there. It was about a mile from my house. And it's just looking up at me. So I thought it was really hurt, and I tried to scoop it into the shoebox, and it just gets up, looks at me, and flies away. There's nothing wrong with it. Wings were fine. I saw it flying off into the distance. And I thought it just hit me like a ton of bricks right at that moment. There was nothing I could do to save this innocent little bird, which in the end, he was fine. He flew away. And there was nothing I could do to save Spalding. Kathy Russo. These days, she's a producer on the podcast You and Me Both with Hillary Clinton. And the executive producer of the podcast, Here's the Thing, with Alec Baldwin. Well, the various stories in today's rerun were produced by Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Blue Chevney, Jane Marie, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Menhevar, Lisa Pollock, Brian Reed, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Ship, Julie Snyder, Elise Spiegel, and Nancy Updike. Music up from Mr. John Connors. Other help today from Larry Josephson and Jay Headblade. Additional production on today's rerun from James Bennett II, Michael Comite, and Stone Nelson. Some updates on the people in today's rerun. Tamara Staples has launched a Kickstarter campaign for a new project, a documentary series about show chickens. It's called The Standard of Perfection. George Cairns, the grandfather from the Davidson's Dairy Farm, died back in 2011. Susan Vitucci's opera about Chicken Little is available on CD and also on several streaming platforms. More information on where you can find it at www.pulcina.org. That is Pulcina spelled, of course, P-U-L-C-I-N-A. Jack Hitt's story about her first aired all the way back in 1997. Our website, thisamericanlife.org where you can stream over 800 of our episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's merch for your holiday shopping. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know what product drives him crazy? Chicken of the sea. He's like, is that chicken? It's tuna. Typical that a tuna would fib like that. Chicken never would. Chickens aren't going to lie. Chickens have... uh Integrity. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Little birdie, little birdie, what makes you fly so high when you know that?